can open your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Also making mention of the other two readings inside of your bulletin. The first, second, and third readings for our worship service this morning. But Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13 will be the main chapter. As we look at a very dark period of time in Israel's history. And I have bad news and good news today. The bad news first. We're going to look at the Israelites in this very dark chapter and their sinful behavior, as well as Moses and Aaron and their sinful behavior. The sins in the wilderness. But secondly, we're going to look at the satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And we'll take a look at the other two passages this morning briefly from John chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Under the sins in the wilderness, I want you to notice the people complain in verses 1 through 5. And then the Lord instructs Moses in verses 9, or excuse me, verses 6 through 8. You could say Moses and Aaron. And then Moses disobeys in verses 9 through 11. And then finally, the Lord disciplines Moses and Aaron in verses 12 through 13. So along with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless by His Spirit our time of study together today. Lord, only you can bring about faith and repentance. Only you, by your Holy Spirit, can grow your children so that they would produce fruit. So Lord, I pray that all of us, pastor and people alike, would exercise great reliance upon you and your Spirit now, As we humbly look into your word, Lord, lead us into all truth about ourselves and about you. And we'll give you the praise and glory for the outcome. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've already read the passage this morning, but I want you to notice the complaint of the people in verses 1 through 5. The chapter opens with the death of Miriam. Later in this same year, Aaron and Moses will also die. And this marks the end of a generation that could not enter Canaan. Remember the Lord said, because of your rebellious, rebellious acts, he told the people of Israel that they would spend 40 years in the wilderness and that they, that entire generation would not enter the promised land. And little did they know at that point that that would include Miriam and Aaron and Moses, as we will see. And so in verses 2 through 5, the people began to demonstrate their sin. They have forgotten or ignore all that God has done for them. Right now, it's about the 38th or 39th year that they've been in the wilderness. And there have been several occasions when there has been rebellion, there has been murmuring and grumbling and complaining against the Lord. And many people have died. Look at some of the features of their sinful behavior. I think this is important. As I was studying this past week, and I asked myself the question, are these things uh, present in my life? Number one, there's arrogance and rebellion. Look at verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. 
There's no delay. <laughs> There's no patience whatsoever. They have a problem, and immediately they're ready to go on the offensive. You see, their faith and trust in Jehovah goes only as far as the Lord's ability to fulfill and address their greedy and often selfish desires. And we also know from other places in Scripture that their behavior here is not primarily against Moses and Aaron. It's really against the Lord. It's directed against the Lord. So there's arrogance and rebellion. There's also an unwillingness to be patient and wait on the Lord. You know, the Lord has been faithful to His people for 38 long years in the desert wilderness. And you would think that when they don't have water, they could wait at this point. They've learned their lesson that the Lord will always provide for their needs. He has never forsaken them. He has never let them down. But that's not enough for them not to go against Moses. Also notice they say rash, extreme, and thoughtless words. Really contradictory words. Look at verse 3. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Interesting time here. This could have been the golden calf incident, or most likely the rebellion of Korah in Numbers chapter 16. You remember Korah and all of his family as they became arrogant and they tried to take the authority of Moses and Aaron away? They're saying, you're not the only ones who are holy. We're holy too. And God judged the entire tribe of Korah. And the ground opened up and it swallowed him and all of his family and all of his belongings, all of his cattle. Well, look at these absurd words. Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. You see, whenever we rebel against God, whenever we demonstrate arrogance, whenever we get impatient and we're not willing to wait on the Lord, we start saying rash things. We stop making sense. We stop doing things that are reasonable. You know, sin makes you insane. Sin leads to insanity. Often. We start doing those things and practicing things that God expressly forbids. Look at our culture. Our culture is basically drowning in insanity. Morally, nationally, politically, it's a frightening time. Well, not only that, they accuse Moses and impugn his motives. Look at verse 4. Why have you brought this assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Notice the blame shifting. <laughs> 38 years, these people have been rebellious and turning away from the Lord. For 38 years, Moses has sought to intercede for them, to pray for them, to lead them. And who do they shift the blame to? Somebody's got to pay, and it's not going to be me. That's their attitude. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? That we should die here, both we and our cattle. One other area, they prefer bondage to freedom. Look at verse 5. Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? You see the insanity of this? They've lost sight of the fact that they were slaves in Egypt. 
And now they ask this question, why have you made us come up out of Egypt as if Egypt was a great place to be? You know, they often talked about what they had to eat in Egypt. Garlics and leeks, meat, things that they constantly complain about. You know, sometimes our perspective, our mindset can become so perverse that we lose the ability to distinguish between good and evil. That's happening in our culture. What are those who call evil good and good evil? Because our minds are affected by sin. And without repentance, the mind goes further and further into perversion. And that's what we're seeing in our country now, especially in the sexual realm. What are those who call evil good and good evil? There's a note of sacrilege here. Why have you brought us up to this evil place? The Lord has taken them to a place of milk and honey, a promised land, and now they would label it as evil. In other words, Egypt and being in bondage is preferred to this awful place and my present circumstances. You see, in summary, the Israelites demonstrate a lifestyle that is devoted to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've been studying about the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit last several weeks, including the Sunday that Nick preached. And we've learned that there are fruits of the Spirit and fruits of the flesh. And that's exactly what you see in these people. They are devoted not to pleasing and glorifying God, not to walking in His Spirit as much as they could under the Old Covenant, but to personal satisfaction, comfort, and pleasure. That's what they're devoted to. You know, many, many years later, Jesus said, unless you deny yourself and take up your cross, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus was not trying to inflict pain by saying those words. He was telling us the truth. That the way that this world goes, broad is the way to destruction. And people are devoted to themselves. They are separated from God because of their sins. And so it's no surprise that they look to themselves as the center of the universe. And they begin to live for comfort and ease and pleasure. They live out lives of severe narcissism totally consumed with themselves. They're led and controlled and mastered not by the Lord and His grace, but by their carnal desires and appetites. They continue to reject the truth in spite of seeing God's actions and discipline for 40 years. You know, you'd think they get it right by now, but how many times have I, how many times have you seen the Lord's work in your life, in my life, and yet still go back to the same awful things that we believe the Lord has delivered us from. Let me fast forward to the pastoral epistles, 2 Timothy 3.1. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Realize this, that in last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, 
without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And Paul goes on to say they're always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's frightening, isn't it? He also says here they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And that's the way the Israelites behave. Well, those are the sins of the Israelites, some of them. Notice Moses and Aaron in verses 6 through 8. They run and seek the Lord and His guidance. They know something bad is going to happen here because of the track record of the people of Israel. In verses 6 through 8, the Lord gives them instructions. He says, take the staff, which represented the authority of God, and most likely was the rod that Aaron had, Aaron's rod which budded in another place when the Israelites rebelled against the authority of Aaron as the priest, the high priest. He said, take that staff and go and speak to the rock in the presence of the congregation. And subsequently, water will flow from the rock for the people and their cattle. So we move to verses 9 through 11, where Moses disobeys. You'll notice he begins with obedience, verse 9, but he does not fully obey the Lord's instructions. He took the staff, as the Lord said, but he doesn't do exactly what the Lord says. And as will be the case with King Saul many years later, partial obedience is no obedience at all. If our heart is not in it, something is seriously wrong. Diane and I have been reading uh, daily devotionals about Balaam and Balak, you know, in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. And Balaam really is an unusual character because he does a lot of the right things, but it's clear that his heart is not in it. He's out for gain. He's out for money. But he has a veneer of godliness as a prophet, and yet he dabbles of divination. Partial obedience is no obedience at all. We have to search our hearts. The bottom line is, we learn later in Numbers 27, God tells Moses, you rebelled against my command to treat me holy before the eyes at the water, before the eyes of the Israelites. Now I want you to notice three things in regard to Moses' actions. First, number one, he speaks harshly to the people, calling them rebels. That's not what God told him to do. God said, speak to the rock. But Moses comes out with harsh words to the Israelites. Second, he assigns the ability to bring forth water to himself and Aaron. Very interesting, these words. Look at verse 10. Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you? Out of this rock? Almost as if God is absent. And thirdly, he strikes the rock with his staff, not once but twice, instead of speaking to the rock. Now I think it's safe to say when we read these verses, as Brian did so beautifully a little while ago with the right inflection, that Moses was perhaps angry and irritable. I think it's safe to say that Moses is somewhat fearful and insecure. Because you see, the same event happened earlier in the wilderness experience in Exodus chapter 17. And in that narrative, at the beginning of the 40-year period in the wilderness, Moses 
is fearful. He says, Lord, they want water and they're going to stone me. I think here, 40 years later, Moses is tired. He's fearful, somewhat insecure. We can only speculate. But isn't that so in our own lives? Often we move forward in our own strength to fulfill our own plans in spite of the clear instructions of the Word of the Lord. And instead of sensing the presence and the peace of God, we experience anger and anxiety and fear and insecurity. One other observation about Moses. Our sins have an impact on others. It's not just ourselves. Who knows that Moses wasn't worn down. And here we see a low point in his life after 38 or 40 years with these people. Now Moses is responsible. Aaron is responsible for his sinful acts. But what I'm pointing to is that often our sin takes a toll on those around us. And we need to check ourselves and find out if we're being a stumbling block or if we are in any way getting in the way of somebody else's sanctification. Well, moving on quickly, the Lord disciplines Moses and Aaron in verses 12. It's a very dark verse. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, because you did not believe in me, that's pretty strong, isn't it? To uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. And although Moses would not lead the children of Israel in the promised land, the Lord did give him an opportunity to see it in Numbers chapter 27. And so in summary, this dark chapter, it begins with something as simple as a desire for water. But it ends with sin and tragedy amongst the people of God and the sin or the leaders of the people of God, Moses and Aaron. A couple things to remember here by way of summary. One, this passage reminds us of God's holiness and our sinfulness. God must be treated as holy. The Lord delights in those who fear Him, and He makes His will known to them. This passage also serves as a reminder that no one is immune to sin. Moses was arguably the greatest man in the Old Testament. And Hebrews makes that clear. But he wasn't sinless. And we see it in living color here. No one is immune to sin. This passage thirdly serves as a reminder that there is a great cost as a result of sin. God is absolutely sovereign. And sometimes we see in the Bible his incredible patience and mercy and grace with individuals. Other times we see one act of sinfulness and it costs immensely. And the Lord knows what He's doing in all of His sovereignty and majesty. But there is a cost to sin. And sometimes we see it immediately and sometimes it's later on. This passage serves to remind us that our sins impact others, as I've already mentioned, and not just ourselves. As Paul would say later, bad company corrupts good morals. It's very important that we, as Christians, find ourselves in the good company of other believers. Not that we back away from the world, but that our closest relationships and friendships would be with other believers. Now, that's all the bad news. Let me quickly hasten to the good news. 
on this 4th of July weekend. Notice the satisfaction in Christ. All three of these passages deal with water. And in the Old Testament, the Israelites wanted water. All this mess, this sin, was precipitated by a desire for a drink of water. Later on, Jesus would interact with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. That woman who was a sinful woman. She'd been married five times, and she was living with a guy at the time that she met Jesus. And the Lord Jesus sought her out. The Lord Jesus went to her. He went right through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with her. And he says in verses 13 and 14, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. When I look at the Israelites, I can easily see myself. When I look at Moses, I can see myself, both in terms of my sin. Because often I can be fearful. I can stop trusting the Lord. I can be impatient. And I may desire some things that are not good or not right for me. But what I really need, down deep inside of my heart and my soul, is the very thing that only Jesus can offer. Because only He can put an artesian well down deep inside of you. Only He can bring about contentment and peace of mind because of forgiveness of sins. Only Jesus can do that. And that's why He speaks here of this marvelous well. Really is a symbol of eternal life. Of the Spirit coming to live inside of us whenever we turn from our sin and turn to Christ in obedience and trust and absolute faith in His finished work on the cross. Jesus went to the cross to die for all of our sins. He went to the cross to make us holy and sinless. He went to the cross to adopt us into the heavenly family and make us clean. Sin is a harsh reality in this life. But the good news is that Jesus Christ can forgive our sins and give us the true and everlasting water of life. That is, eternal life. Christ can cleanse our conscience from dead works so that we desire to serve the living God. Christ can erase and eliminate those sins that we never thought could be forgiven. Only Jesus, by His blood, can do that. He's alive and He's ready to forgive and enter into the heart of any man or woman or young person who would invite him in. The Israelites were content with the temporary waters of this world. Are you? Your water is just a symbol here. It's a symbol of all the stuff that life offers. But Jesus says, you need something greater than this. You need the water of life. You need the bread of life. You need the light of life. The Israelites demonstrate a keen interest in what was good for their bodies, but not for their souls. They had a temporary satisfaction in the things that this world could give. But what they really needed was Jesus. And you know, the amazing thing is that they had no disadvantage. That's why we read 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4. Paul demonstrates the continuity between the people of God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
You see, in the Old Testament, people were not saved by the law or obeying the Ten Commandments. They were saved by grace through faith. They demonstrated a faith in Jehovah. And they looked forward to the coming of Messiah, even though they didn't know who it was. We have all of that information on this side of the cross. We know who Messiah is, the Lord Jesus. But look what Paul says in these verses. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You know, the Israelites had an old wives' tale that circulated that the water from the rock it was a symbol of God's provisions. And for the rest of the time of their journey in the wilderness, the rock followed them. You just imagine that, a rock following you. Well, Paul perhaps is playing on this, and he says, no, it wasn't a literal rock. Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, was there in that wilderness. And so they had no disadvantage. We're saved by grace through faith, under the new covenant, just like the old, the only difference is we know the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting how Paul frames this with sacramental language. You notice they were baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea. That is strictly Pauline. You will not find that phrase anywhere else in the New Testament. And they ate spiritual food and they drank spiritual drink. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, at the advantages that they have, just like us. It's almost as if the sacraments were there. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And yet they didn't obey. Verse 5, I failed to include it in this passage. <clears throat> it says, The Lord was not pleased with most of them. And they fell in the wilderness. They were baptized into Moses. They had spiritual food and drink. These Israelites had all the advantages that we have, but the key ingredient that was missing was authentic, saving faith. And that's what we must have. Faith in Christ. Even as we approach the Lord's table this morning. There's spiritual food and drink here, but only when we approach by faith and devotion and say, Lord, forgive me afresh and anew for all of my sins and enable me, empower me to live by faith in you so that I see your interaction and how you propel me through life so that I might bring honor and glory and give thanks to your name. Where are you at this morning? Maybe you see yourself as an Israelite. Don't stop there. Come and get spiritual food and drink. Come and look to your life and trust in the rock of Christ. Come drink the water of life as you give your life to Him in faith and obedience and experience the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this dark chapter. The darkness only illuminates the brightness of the light. That in the midst of great sin, where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. So, Lord, may we look with fear and trembling at the example of the Israelites and even Moses and Aaron. But then help us to turn immediately 
the good news, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that there's one here this morning, a man, a woman, a child. They've never embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That, Lord, that would sovereignly take place. And that, Father, for all of us who already have done that, that you would encourage us with this good news. That even in the midst of a dark world and nation, there is a light shining. Even in the midst of the dryness of sin, our thirst, the thirst of our souls, can be satisfied. Lord Jesus, do all of your holy will. We'll give you the praise and glory as you move on our hearts and lives. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.